Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Sojourn Heights. As he said, we're in the book of Matthew. We're actually finishing what's been a long run in the, in the book of Matthew. So today is not only a day where we are dedicating our, uh, our children all day and baptizing three people at, at five. Um, it's also uh, the, the end of our series in Matthew. And so I want to do uh, this. I want to pick up where we left off last week. And where we left off last week was with a question. The question was this, what if I have doubts? Doubts, Brandon, what if I, um, what if I have doubts? And so I wanna pick that up, uh, and I wanna begin picking that up with a story. Story goes like this. Boy meets girl, boy chases girl. Boy falls in love with girl, but girl plays hard to get. Boy wants to marry girl. Boy buys the girl a ring, he gets down on one knee, and he says these words. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And here's my question to boy. That's anybody who has gotten down on a knee like I have and said, I want to spend the rest of my life uh, with you. Here's my question. You ready? How do you know? How do you know? I think it's a fair, legitimate, honest question. How do you know that 10 years from now, you're still going to want to spend the rest of your life with the person you're saying, I want to spend the rest of my life with you? To which all of the engaged people panic. (laughs) The thesis of the story is not, um, don't get married. It's this, it's that you are living by the assumption that you will. You're living and operating today by the assumption that you're going to want to spend the rest of your life with this person. Richard Dawkins, a pretty famous atheist, he wrote a book called The God Delusion, did an interview, and in the interview he said, I can't prove God doesn't exist. I live by the assumption that he doesn't. It's an awfully big assumption. Here's my point. Whether it's marriage or whether it's does God exist, we all live by a set of assumptions, and those assumptions become the soil for doubt. And so I want to modify our question from last week for us today. I want to ask this question. Can worship and doubt coexist? Can I, can I be a worshiper of Jesus if I have doubts about Jesus? I don't want to do it fast. I don't have much time to work with, so let's go. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, here, here's how I've always understood this text, is the way that I've always heard it taught, is um, there's the 11. These 11 were 11 of the original 12 uh, that followed Jesus for three years, uh, and they, they see this resurrected Christ, and they look and they worship him, but then a subset of the 11 doubt. So you've got the 11, they all worship, but of the 11, there's four, maybe five who wrestle with doubt. But here's the, here's the problem with this. The word some, and to be honest, I, I didn't know this until I was prepping for this week. The word some, it's not in the original. So the New Testament's written in Greek, translated into English, and when you're, when you're translating from one language to another, you're, you're doing the best you can to communicate what it was that the author, in this case, uh, Matthew, was trying to communicate. And so what he, what he was communicating here was that there were these 11 that worship, and then they, that there were some who doubted. Uh, but if I could be an academic nerd for just a moment, um, where it says, now the 11 and then but some doubted, it's the exact same language. It's the exact same wording. It's the but 11, the but doubted. Um, here's the, the point. 
There is no grammatical reason in this passage to believe that this isn't the 11 who see Jesus' worship and all 11 doubt. Now, it, it might not have been. It, it might have been two or five or seven or, or nine of them, but we have no reason not to presume that all 11 see Jesus are ignited with worship and at the same time doubt. And so to our question, can worship and doubt coexist, um, the suspense is not going to last very long today. Uh, because it's clear that in these 11, the answer is yes. And if we were to scan the Bible on doubt, here's what we're going to find. Um, it's never treated as a, uh, as a good thing, no, not once. At times, it's treated as a negative thing, but it's also treated with a level of realism and compassion. That's why Jude 22 says, hey, have, have mercy on those who doubt, those of us who wrestle with doubt, those of us who, who just say, man, I've got legitimate questions, I've got real questions, things that I, I wrestle with, what the scriptures would say to us is that we're to, to engage that with the compassion, the mercy of God. So if I ask the question, can I be a follower of Jesus if I struggle with doubt? It seems like from these 11, the answer is yes. We get it, man, we get it. Every week, they're feeling the same thing. I understand. But I think, I think uh, the real question we need to ask is this. How does Jesus respond? Like, how does Jesus respond to our doubts? Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we... But we need to read this verse here, and we need to not read it in a vacuum, as if it's just some abstract thing that, that Jesus, one of his random statements, like that guy, he was just a pretty random dude, you know, he just rolled out, all of a sudden he's just saying things like, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's not how we read this. He is saying this to people, flesh and blood, like you and me, who are seeing him resurrected alive, having this combination worship, doubt, fire off inside of them. And here's the thing, I went to, I went to seminary. Um, I wish I could not have done half of it and had done half of one. Half my money back is what I'm trying to say from seminary. Um, and in seminary, we dissected this verse, this, this statement of Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I think in my dissecting, I, I think I missed, and I think, I'm certain, I missed, and I have missed, what it is that Matthew wants us to see most. I think what Matthew wants us to see most is two words. You ready? Jesus came. Jesus came. That in the middle of their doubting, this worship doubt explosion firing off in these 11 disciples, um, the way that Matthew writes this to be an academic nerd for just one more minute, it's this compound word that's as if he's saying, he ran running to you. He he. He came coming to you. And Matthew puts it at the front of the sentence, which in his day was how you screamed something at people. He is screaming out, here's what you've got to see. Jesus came. You, you who are doubting, you know what the first thing he did was? He moved toward them. What he didn't do, um, he, he didn't do the, uh, hey, you know what? Uh, what? What more proof do you need, guys? What do you mean, doubt? Are you kidding me? You saw me die, you see me alive. You need more proof than this? What more proof do you need? He didn't do that deal on a, 
uh, that, that conversation where you've been dating, you know, four, five, six months, three months, I don't know. He, she, whoever you're dating, uh, you, you hear that they were off hanging out at his party and, uh, you know, their ex was there. And so you get really enraged because, you know, you're insecure and don't know how to deal with it. And so anger is how we deal with it. Um, and they look at you and say, you know, the problem is this, you don't trust me. You don't trust me. Here, here's the problem, you don't trust me. What Jesus didn't do was have that conversation with them that goes, man, I've been telling you all along I was gonna die and be resurrected and you didn't trust me. He doesn't do that. He moves toward them. In the middle of their doubt, in the middle of their fear, in the middle of their um, worship doubt explosion going off inside of them, what Jesus doesn't do is rebuke their doubt. He simply moves toward them in their doubt. And if you're in this room right now, and, and you're one of those wrestling with doubt, like, man, I want to believe, but I just got these doubts. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing right now as I say these words. He is moving toward you. Now, listen, I know some of our doubts in here are more intellectual, but some of our doubts are more emotional. Some of our doubts are less about who he is and more about who we are. Less about is he alive and more about how could he ever love me. I know me, man. I know college. I, I know what I did. I know last month. I know who I really am. And if there's a God who is alive, there's no way he could love me. Whether it's intellectual or whether it's emotional, whatever he's doing or what he's doing right now in the midst of your doubt, is he's moving toward you. <coughs> I'm under it. So if you're a parent, keep your kid away from me today. But then he does speak, and when he speaks, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And because it has, verse 19, <coughs> go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go, go lead all nations to become followers of Jesus. How? He's gonna give us two ways. First, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> that the word baptize, it's, or baptized in, it's literally into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And in baptism, something is happening to you. You're being given, uh, you're being given a new name. You're, you're given the name beloved child of God. You're not just such the formula that we use. It's something that's actually happening to you. That you're being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Does baptism erase all doubt? Of course not. Does it mean you'll never struggle with doubt again? Of course not. Of course that's not what it means. But I have this seven-year-old daughter uh, and she's the, the kind of kid that you don't have to spank like when they're in trouble. Um, yes, I spank my kids if you're upset with me. We can talk about that afterwards. Um, but you don't have to spank this one. Uh, you can just look at her, right? So if she'll, she gets in trouble, this is the way it usually goes. Um, she'll do something. Um, I simply look at her and say, Isley Bray. She'll look back at me, our eyes meet, and then her bottom lip, it just starts to quiver, Right? And then, I know, she's so precious, isn't she? But she still disobeys, and she deserves this. Uh, and, and she'll look at me, and she'll say this, Daddy, I don't feel loved right now. 
It's because daddy's angry right now. That's why you don't feel loved right now. But here's the, here's the deal. My love for my daughter is unwavering. It doesn't matter how much my daughter disobeys. My love for that little seven-year-old, unwavering. Why? Because she has my name. She has my name. Her last name is Barker. She's my child. My love is unwavering. But baptism is not the only way that we make disciples. It keeps going. The second way is this. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This teaching isn't just head knowledge, right? It's to learn obedience. To learn obedience to Jesus. <coughs> As a father, part of my job is to teach my kids um, obedience. They don't always, in fact, they don't usually follow the rules. Um, but why is it expected? Again, because they have uh, my name. It's why I don't have the same expectations for your kids or kids in the future that they obey me. Um, I, I expect my kids to obey me because I'm their father. On the flip side, um, their disobedience doesn't cost them their name. They don't lose the family name because of their disobedience. Now, my kids could, and this would be horrific and heartbreaking, but my kids could one day walk away from our family and choose to go down to the courthouse and change their name. It'd be awful. But as their father, you, you know what conversations never happened? My wife, her name's Amanda. <coughs> we've never, we've never sat on our little couch and said, you know what, hey, here's the deal, babe. Like our kids this last month, month and a half, they have just been awful. We have had that conversation. Um, like they, they have just been off. Like they've been terrible. I, I think this is what we should do. Why don't we do this? Why don't we go down to the courthouse and let's change their name to Pangra? <laughs> Knowles, maybe. We know where they live. We can just drop them off and roll on. Never happened. Would never happen. Why? Because I'm their father. Their disobedience doesn't cost them our last name. It doesn't cost them the name that I gave them. They also don't get to keep their name because of their obedience. They don't, they don't keep their name because of their obedience. They don't lose their name because of their disobedience. They have a name that's been given to me. I expect obedience because I'm their father, and I love them as a father. And so we're baptized into a name that comes with the expectation that we would learn the obedience of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking, uh, what does this have to do with today? What does it have to do with dedicating our uh, children. It's a legitimate question to ask this. Does make disciples, baptizing, and teaching apply to our children? It's a very real question. And so I know you feel that question, right? And so here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, we're we're going to look into the New Testament quickly, and then we're going to let the New Testament about our children speak back into the question, does Matthew 28 apply to our children? So 1 Corinthians 2, or 1, verse 2 um, this is Paul, he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. I want you to zero in on two words, sanctified saints. Here's why. It's the word holy, noun, verb. Same word as holy, noun, verb, sanctified saints. And now seven chapters later, he's just written to the church of God in Corinth called holy. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Holy. When Paul thinks of the church in Corinth, he thinks of their children. Same word he used to say the church of God in Corinth is the same word he applies to the children in the church in Corinth. It's why um, in Ephesians 6, Paul, the same author, says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's my favorite verse in the Bible right now. For this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. Here's what he just did. Built on the foundation that he sees children in Corinth as part of the church in Corinth. He then takes something from the Ten Commandments that was written to Israelite children on Mount Sinai way back in the Old Testament. And he applies it to Gentile children in Ephesus. See, for Paul, there's not this sharp distinction between children in Israel and children in the church. So does Matthew 28 apply to our children? Of course it does. Of course it does. Where in the world would we ever think that it doesn't? That's why our great driving hope is this, that my children, my four little children, would not have the same story that I have, that the story that they have would not be one of life this way, um, going to church because some girls invite you and you're trying to figure out who the church girl isn't. When Jesus shows up and wrecks your world, my, my prayer for our kids, for my kids, is that, that they would grow up and when we ask them, they would just say, I don't remember a day I didn't believe. I just don't remember. I don't, like I grew up, I always loved Jesus. I don't remember this day where I didn't. Has life been perfect? Of course it hasn't been perfect. But I don't remember a day I didn't believe. It's our prayer. It's our hope for our children, for your children. I love, uh, I love these Sundays. If you've been around for a while, you've been around long enough to see Southern kids go from four to seven to 20 to 60 to who knows uh, in, the, in the future. Uh, and um, it, it, is, it is a genuine gift and a genuine privilege to get to be the church together and to watch uh, these little ones grow up and, and to have first and second and fifth and 10th and 15th birthdays. Um, does this mean, does growing up inside the church mean that they won't struggle with doubt in the future? Of course uh, that's not what it means. <clears throat> but what we're saying when we say, hey, we're, we're, we're as family covenanting to, um, to help them raise their children, this is what, what's happening, that, that when they do doubt, when the doubts of the future come to these kids, we're, we're saying that the way that Jesus is going to move toward them isn't just going to be through their parents, it's also going to be through us. That he's going to come to them. Jesus came, is going to be meaningful to them, through our church. And so there's an ending to Matthew 28 uh, that we didn't read. It says crescendo, and I want to read it. And it goes in, behold, this is Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In the middle of your doubting, in the middle of your fear, in the middle of your hopes and hurts and heartaches, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And one of the ways that Jesus is with us uh, is through the communion table. And so when we come to the table uh, every week by faith, this faith that is often weak, that is um, often laced with doubt, Jesus meets us here and sustains us. There'll be a day when we don't doubt any longer, but until that day is here, we just keep coming to the table so that whatever faith we have could be nourished and strengthened and sustained.
And we don't come alone. We come together. We come to the table together as the people. It's why every week we say this. Uh, we say, as we come to the table, we, not you, the individual, walking down an aisle, grabbing bread, dipping it in the cup, and going, but as we, as we come to the table, we pray to the Lord with one voice. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Miss our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive this sacrament as a sign and seal of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Father, thank you for welcoming us to this table. Christ, thank you for meeting us through this table, meeting those who doubt in their doubts at this table. You can taste and see that the Lord is good.